Marvin Vincent's commentary on Luke 2 provides a detailed linguistic and historical analysis of key terms, enhancing the understanding of the passage's context. He begins by examining the term decree, dogma, which derives from the Greek dokeo, meaning to think. Vincent emphasizes that in its original sense, dogma indicated a personal opinion. However, when used in the context of someone with authority, it transforms into a decree or mandate, reflecting the authority to impose one's opinion on others. This interpretation accentuates the power dynamics at play in the decree mentioned in Luke 2, affirming its authoritative nature. Vincent then explores the phrase, the world, ten okumenen, which translates literally as the inhabited land. He traces its evolution from a term initially used by the Greeks to distinguish their own inhabited lands from those of the barbarians. This definition broadened during the Roman period to refer to the entire Roman world. In the New Testament, the term is more commonly used to denote the entire inhabited earth, though in some contexts, it is still framed within the boundaries of the Roman Empire. This dual usage in the New Testament reflects both the historical context of Roman dominance and the emerging Christian worldview that transcends these imperial boundaries. Also, Vincent delves into the term be-taxed, apographestai, which more accurately means to register or list. He notes the scholarly divide over whether this refers to an enrollment for taxation purposes or for population census. The ambiguity of the term in the original Greek text is reflected in its translation in the revised version of the Bible as enrolled, which can be interpreted in either sense. Moreover, in verse 2, And this taxing was first made, autae apographe prote egeneto, is a reference to a census or enrollment in the Roman Empire. Vincent argues for a more precise translation, suggesting that the phrase should be understood as, This occurred as the first enrollment or, as rendered in the Revised Version, this was the first enrollment made. This interpretation is significant for several reasons. Firstly, Vincent's translation clarifies the chronological sequence of events in the biblical narrative. By identifying the census in Luke 2 as the first enrollment, he asserts the existence of a subsequent census, which is crucial for understanding the historical setting of the New Testament. This subsequent census is mentioned in Acts 5.37, occurring about 11 years later, and is often associated with the revolt led by Judas of Galilee. Secondly, Vincent's analysis highlights the importance of historical accuracy in biblical interpretation. By indicating the term first, he draws attention to the Roman administrative practice of conducting periodic censuses for taxation and administrative purposes. This detail not only adds historical depth to the narrative, but also situates the birth of Jesus Christ within a specific political and social context, illustrating the interplay between divine events and earthly governance. Furthermore, Vincent's interpretation enriches the understanding of the socio-political landscape of the time. The Roman census was a significant event, impacting the lives of those within the empire, including the characters in the biblical narrative. This perspective helps readers appreciate the historical realities faced by early Christians and the socio-political backdrop against which the Christian faith emerged and spread. In addition, Vincent critiques both the authorized version, AV, and the revised version, Reverend, 
of the Bible for their inability to fully convey the dynamic and ongoing nature of the events described. In the Greek text, the word used for went is eporionto, which is in the imperfect tense. This tense is significant because it portrays an action in progress, an ongoing movement. Vincent maintains that this linguistic choice vividly illustrates the scene of Joseph and Mary's journey to Bethlehem. It's not merely a single act of setting out. Rather, it encapsulates the entire process, the preparation, the bustling activity, the actual travel, all in motion. This ongoing action adds a sense of realism and liveliness to the biblical narrative, inviting readers to envision a more animated and active scene than what might be suggested by a simple past tense. Further, Vincent sheds light on the phrase, to his own city. He explains that this isn't just a reference to a hometown in a general sense. Instead, it speaks to a specific socio-cultural context of the time. In this context, his own city refers to the central town linked to an individual's village or place of birth. It was a location where important records, particularly those pertaining to family lineage and house, were kept. This detail is crucial for understanding the biblical narrative, as it reflects the administrative and social structures of the era. In the case of Joseph and Mary, their journey to Bethlehem wasn't merely a homecoming. It was a return to a place of ancestral record and significance, as decreed by the census ordered by Caesar Augustus. Besides, Vincent provides a comprehensive understanding of the Jewish tradition of registration, as it is referenced in the context of Joseph's journey to Bethlehem. This verse is crucial in understanding the socio-cultural fabric of Jewish society at the time, particularly in relation to lineage and family ties. Vincent draws a parallel with Joshua 7, 16, 18, where a similar method of identifying individuals by tribes, families, or clans and households is used. This method of registration is not merely a bureaucratic exercise, but a reflection of the deeply ingrained values and structures within Jewish society. In the historical context of the Bible, lineage and family ties were not just markers of identity, but also of legal and social standing. They determined a person's rights, responsibilities, and place in society. This is why the census, as described in Luke 2, 4, required people to return to their ancestral homes. It was a way to maintain and affirm these vital social structures. Vincent's commentary sheds light on the importance of the phrase house and lineage in this verse. In the revised version, this is translated as house and family, which perhaps offers a clearer understanding of the text. This translation points out the significance of familial lineage and ancestral ties, which were core to one's identity in Jewish culture. Additionally, Vincent focuses on the journey of Joseph and Mary to fulfill the Roman requirement of being taxed, or more accurately, registered in a census. Vincent offers two distinct readings of this passage, both of which shed light on the nature of Joseph and Mary's journey and their relationship at this time. The first reading interprets the phrase, to be taxed with Mary, as indicating that Mary simply accompanied Joseph to Bethlehem. This interpretation reiterates the physical presence of Mary alongside Joseph without implying any legal requirement for her to be there. It reflects the traditional understanding of Mary's role as Joseph's betrothed and her supportive presence during this significant journey. The second interpretation, however, 
suggests a more involved role for Mary in this process. Vincent proposes that the phrase could be read as to enroll himself with Mary, which implies that both Joseph and Mary were required to be registered in the census. This interpretation repeats a legal aspect to their journey, indicating that both were subjects of the Roman census. This reading underlines the notion that Mary was not merely accompanying Joseph, but was an essential participant in fulfilling the legal requirements of the time. Also, Vincent clarifies the marital status of Mary and Joseph. He underscores that they were not merely betrothed, but were indeed married, as indicated by references in Matthew 1 20, 24, 25, and Luke 1 18. This distinction is important in understanding the societal and religious context of their relationship during this journey. Moreover, Vincent comments on the phrase great with child, eguo, used to describe Mary's condition. He notes that this specific Greek term is unique in the New Testament, used only in this context. This term emphasizes the advanced stage of Mary's pregnancy during their journey to Bethlehem, adding a layer of physical and emotional complexity to their travel. Vincent's analysis of the Greek term enriches the understanding of Mary's condition, providing a deeper insight into the challenges and significance of this journey in the narrative. Furthermore, Vincent examines the phrase, her firstborn son, noting that the original Greek text accentuates Jesus as Mary's firstborn. This detail affirms the significance of Jesus's birth in Christian theology. Vincent then turns his attention to the phrase, wrapped in swaddling clothes, esparganosin, unique to Luke's account. He notes that this term is often found in medical writings of the time, indicating the care and attention given to newborns. The origin of the word swaddle is traced back to swathle, which comes from the verb to swathe, asserting the practice of tightly wrapping newborns for warmth and security. In addition, the commentary dives into the term in a manger, and fatney, used only by Luke in the New Testament. Vincent suggests that this manger could have been located in a rock cave, a common feature in the region, as observed by Dr. Thompson. This detail paints a vivid picture of the humble and modest circumstances of Jesus' birth. The most extensive discussion is on the term in the inn, unto Catalumati. Vincent differentiates its usage in Luke 2 from other New Testament contexts where it is translated as guest chamber. He argues that it refers to a khan or caravanserai, a type of roadside inn common in the Middle East. Describing the Syrian khan, Vincent paints a lively scene of a multifunctional establishment that serves as a fort, mart, and refuge. He details the activities and people found around a khan, from traders and pilgrims to animals and local merchants. This bustling environment provides a backdrop to the nativity story, offering insights into the social and economic structures of the time. Further, Vincent digs into the symbolism and thematic significance of the shepherd's role in the Gospel of Luke. He begins by contextualizing the gospel as one that often highlights the experiences of the poor and lowly. The shepherds in this narrative are emblematic of this focus, as they were marginalized in Jewish society. Their profession, which necessitated isolation and a nomadic lifestyle, hindered their ability to adhere to strict religious laws and rituals, leading to their general disenfranchisement. Vincent's analysis pays particular attention to the phrase keeping watch, 
Fulasantes Falakas, used in the text. He interprets this not just as a literal description of the shepherds guarding their flock, but also as a metaphorical reference to a specific measure of time, drawing parallels to other biblical passages where the term is similarly employed. He indicates the linguistic play of watching watches, enriching the narrative's texture. A critical element in Vincent's interpretation is the reference to Migdal Ader, the watchtower near Bethlehem. This place holds special significance as the station where shepherds watched over flocks designated for temple sacrifices. Vincent maintains the Jewish belief that the Messiah would emerge from Bethlehem and be revealed from Migdal Eder. This connection casts the revelation of Christ to the shepherds in a profoundly symbolic light, intertwining themes of sacrifice, redemption, and divine revelation. Besides, Vincent reflects on the use of the singular term, their flock, ten poimnen, positing that it could specifically refer to the temple flock, consecrated for sacrifice. This interpretation is bolstered by biblical practices of referring to flocks as belonging to their shepherds, as seen in other scriptures. Through his analysis, Vincent ties the shepherd's story to the broader narrative of sacrifice and messianic prophecy in the gospel pointing out the intricacies and layered meanings in this biblical passage. Additionally, Vincent addresses the textual variation concerning the word behold. He reiterates that this term is omitted in the most reliable manuscripts, suggesting a closer adherence to the original text in these versions. This observation reflects Vincent's attention to textual criticism and the importance of using the most authentic sources in biblical interpretation. Moving on to the phrase, the angel, Vincent repeats a significant translation detail. He notes that the original Greek text lacks a definite article, implying that the correct translation should be an angel rather than the angel. This distinction is important in understanding the narrative, as it suggests the appearance of a singular unspecified angel, rather than a specific or known angelic being. This insight aligns with the revised version of the Bible, which Vincent references to support his argument. Vincent then explores the Greek word epeste, epeste, used to describe how the angel appeared to the shepherds. He explains that this word has multiple meanings in classical Greek, including to come upon and to stand by. Vincent prefers the latter interpretation, as to come upon carries a more hostile or aggressive connotation as seen in its use in Acts 17, 5, where it is translated as assaulted. He argues that the more neutral to stand by is a better fit for the context of Luke 2, 9, where the angel's appearance is not meant to be threatening. Also, Vincent examines the phrase, they were sore afraid. He clarifies that the literal Greek translation is feared with great fear underlining the depth and intensity of the shepherd's fear in response to the angel's sudden appearance. This phrase captures the overwhelming awe and terror that such a supernatural encounter would likely invoke in ordinary individuals. Moreover, Vincent analyzes the phrase, I bring you good tidings of great joy, my umin karan megalin, noting its literal translation. He references the Wycliffe Bible, which translates this phrase as, I evangelize to you a great joy. This interpretation is significant because it directly ties the announcement to the concept of evangelism, the act of bringing good news. 
The Greek verb euagalizomai, often translated as bring good tidings, is more than mere communication of news. It is the proclamation of a joyful message with profound spiritual significance. The term which, etis, in the verse, is underscored by Vincent for its importance. This word is not merely a connector. It specifies the nature and character of the joy being announced. It's not just any joy, but one that is deeply entwined with the divine event of Jesus' birth. This specificity is crucial in understanding the verse's message. The joy is unique and directly related to the Christian narrative of salvation. Furthermore, Vincent discusses the use of the word people, tulau, and endorses the Revised Version's translation as the people. The Greek article to hear is deliberate, indicating a specific group, the people of Israel. This detail is theologically significant because it emphasizes that the initial proclamation of Jesus' birth was directed specifically towards the Jewish people. This approach acknowledges their unique position and heritage within the broader narrative of the Bible. In addition, Vincent advocates for a literal translation of the aorist tense in the phrase etekthe, was born, which he argues adds a sense of vividness and immediacy to the narrative. This translation choice accentuates the historical reality and significance of Jesus' birth. In analyzing the verse, Vincent focuses on three pivotal titles ascribed to Jesus, a Savior, Christ, and Lord, each bearing profound theological weight. Firstly, Vincent connects this title to his commentary on Matthew 1.21, where the name Jesus is explicated as meaning, He will save His people from their sins. This affirms the role of Jesus as a Savior in Christian theology, not just in a physical or political sense, but primarily in a spiritual and redemptive context. The title Savior encapsulates the essence of Jesus' mission on earth, to offer salvation to humanity. Secondly, in referring to his notes on Matthew 1, 1, Vincent elucidates that Christ is the Greek counterpart of the Hebrew Messiah, meaning the Anointed One. This title is laden with Jewish expectations of a promised deliverer, a figure prophesied in the Hebrew Scriptures. As Christ, Jesus is acknowledged as the fulfillment of these prophecies, the Anointed One who brings God's plan to fruition. Thirdly, by directing readers to his commentary on Matthew 21. Three, Vincent asserts the title Lord as indicative of supreme authority and divinity. In the biblical context, this title highlights Jesus' divine authority and his lordship over both the spiritual and physical realms. It acknowledges his position of power and his role as a divine ruler. Vincent's commentary on Luke 2.11, therefore, is not just an exercise in linguistic accuracy, but also a deep dive into the theological implications of Jesus' titles. These titles encapsulate key aspects of Christian belief about Jesus' identity and mission, indicating his role as the Savior of humanity, the promised Messiah, and the Divine Lord. Further, in verse 12, two Greek terms are pivotal. Semion, semion, translated as sign, and brifos, brifos meaning the babe or a babe. Vincent's commentary not only translates these terms, but also explores their deeper connotations in the biblical context. The term semion, semion, is significant. Vincent connects this term with his commentary on Matthew 11:20, 20, 
where the same Greek word is used. In the biblical context, a sign is not merely an indicator or a symbol. It often carries a weightier, sometimes divine implication. In the context of Luke 2.12, the sign refers to a miraculous event or an indication of divine intervention. This is not just any sign, but a specific, prophetic indication of something monumental, namely the birth of Jesus Christ. Besides, Vincent's examination of the term brephos, brephos, reveals meticulous attention to linguistic details, his reference to 1 Peter 2, 2, where the same term is used, maintains its importance. In the original Greek, the use of the article a or the before babe is significant. This specificity in language indicates that the baby mentioned is not just any child, but a special foretold one, Jesus Christ. The precise use of language in the Greek text points out the uniqueness and significance of Christ's birth. Additionally, Vincent examines the linguistic and symbolic nuances of the phrase a multitude of the heavenly host with a particular focus on the word host, stratius, which is directly translated as army. This analysis provides a deeper understanding of the biblical text, especially in the context of the nativity story. The word host or army in this context is emblematic of a military force, a concept typically associated with power, strength, and most notably, conflict and war. However, in the narrative of Luke, this army of angels is delivering a message of peace, a profound juxtaposition that Vincent reiterates. This contrast is further illuminated by the commentary of Johann Albrecht Bengel, a noted biblical scholar, who succinctly states, Here the army announces peace. This statement encapsulates the paradoxical nature of the scene. A military force, symbolizing might and conflict, is instead a harbinger of peace and goodwill. Historical translations of the Bible offer additional layers to this interpretation. For instance, the Wycliffe Bible translates the phrase as heavenly knighthood, while the Tyndale Bible refers to them as heavenly soldiers. Both these translations retain the martial imagery, further repeating the contrast between the nature of the messengers, soldiers or knights, typically bearers of war, and the peacefulness of their message. Vincent's focus on this linguistic detail invites readers to contemplate the deeper, symbolic meanings in the scripture. The use of a term associated with war to describe messengers of peace serves as a powerful metaphor for the Christian message of peace overcoming strife. Also, it reflects the transformative power of the divine narrative, where traditional symbols of power and dominance are repurposed to convey a message of divine peace and salvation. Moreover, verse 14, commonly translated as peace, goodwill toward men in English, is derived from the Greek phrase Irene and Anthropoa Eudokia. Vincent underlines the variations in Greek manuscripts, particularly between those used by Tischendorf and Westcott and Hort, which significantly influence the translation and interpretation of this verse. The key variation lies in the Greek term Eudokias. In the manuscripts followed by Tischendorf and Westcott and Hort, this term suggests a translation of unto men of good pleasure, or, as rendered in the revised version, among men in whom he is well pleased. This interpretation implies a more selective sense of divine peace and goodwill, implying that such blessings are specifically directed towards individuals who find favor with God. 
it suggests a kind of divine approval or pleasure towards certain people, which is a narrower interpretation compared to other translations. In contrast, the Wycliffe translation, which reads, to men of goodwill, implies a broader, more inclusive sense of divine goodwill and peace towards all humanity. This translation resonates with a universal approach, suggesting that God's peace and goodwill are extended to all people, irrespective of their status or relationship with the divine. Furthermore, Vincent references similar constructions in other parts of the New Testament, such as Acts 9.15 and Colossians 1.13. In addition, Vincent underscores a textual variation in the description of the shepherds. In some early manuscripts, the Greek phrase oi anthropoi, which translates to the men, is included, but this is omitted in later texts. This observation emphasizes the evolution of biblical manuscripts over time and the variations that can arise in scriptural texts. Such differences may seem minor, but they offer insights into how the biblical narrative was transmitted and possibly understood in different eras. The analysis then focuses on the phrase, let us go, dealthomen. Vincent accentuates the significance of the preposition dia, meaning through, which implies a journey or movement through space. This linguistic detail suggests a deliberate and purposeful action by the shepherds, indicating their intention to traverse the distance to witness the event that has been divinely revealed to them. This movement is not just physical, but also metaphorical, representing a journey from ignorance to enlightenment, from ordinary life to experiencing a divine revelation. Further, Vincent examines the word thing in the context of the shepherd's utterance, translated as rima, meaning an utterance or saying. He connects this to a previous verse in Luke, 137, indicating a thematic link between the verses and a deeper significance to the shepherd's words. Their statement, Let us go and see the saying, which has come to pass, which the Lord made known, is seen as a climax, encapsulating their desire not just to witness, but to verify the truth of what has been revealed. This expresses their faith and eagerness to be part of the divine event, illustrating a transformative moment in their lives. It symbolizes a transition from hearing about a divine revelation to actively seeking and experiencing it. Vincent's analysis sheds light on the shepherd's pivotal role in the nativity narrative, portraying them as active participants in the unfolding of a divine plan. Besides, Vincent focuses on the Greek word anurin, translated as found. This word is noteworthy for its rarity, appearing only twice in the entire New Testament, here in Luke and once in Acts 21, 4. The prefix anna in anurin adds a layer of meaning, suggesting a progressive or sequential discovery, rather than a mere happenstance finding. This implies that the shepherd's finding of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus is a culmination of a series of events or revelations, rather than a sudden or unplanned occurrence. Vincent's observation regarding the use of the definite article for Mary, Joseph, and the babe is particularly significant. In Greek, the definite article is used to denote specificity and identity. By using the article with each name, the text emphatically identifies these figures as the ones previously mentioned and known in the narrative. This is not just any child with any parents. These are the specific individuals, Mary and Joseph, with their extraordinary child, Jesus.
the definite article serves to heighten the importance of this moment, marking it as a fulfillment of the prophecies and expectations that have been building up in the narrative. Additionally, Vincent's analysis sheds light on the narrative technique used in the Gospel of Luke. The careful linguistic choices affirm the deliberate storytelling and theological messaging. The sequential discovery implied in Enurin aligns with the overall theme of revelation and fulfillment found throughout Luke's Gospel. This particular event is not just a narrative detail, but a pivotal moment in the unfolding of the Christian story. As it is the moment when the shepherds, representing ordinary people, first witnessed the Christ child, signifying the revelation of the divine to humanity. Also, Vincent probes into the deeper significance of the shepherds' actions following the nativity of Jesus Christ. This verse marks a pivotal moment in the biblical narrative, where the shepherds, having witnessed the miraculous birth, proceed to disseminate the news. Vincent's interpretation brings into focus not just the act of sharing the news, but the profound implications of who these shepherds were and the setting in which they proclaimed the birth of Jesus. The shepherds, as Vincent notes, were not ordinary field hands, but were specifically tending flocks designated for sacrifices in the temple. This detail is crucial as it connects them directly to the religious and sacrificial practices of the time. Their role as keepers of sacrificial flocks adds a layer of symbolic significance to their encounter with the Christ child. In biblical times, shepherds were often seen as humble yet essential figures, and their connection to sacrificial animals aligns poignantly with Christian interpretations of Jesus as the ultimate sacrificial lamb. Vincent suggests that these shepherds, due to their occupation, would naturally find themselves in the temple, the epicenter of Jewish religious life. Their presence in such a sacred space, coupled with their extraordinary experience, positioned them uniquely to share the news of the Messiah's birth. Their testimony in the temple was not just an announcement, but a proclamation resonating through the religious heart of the Jewish community. In this context, Vincent asserts the theological depth of this moment. The shepherd's declaration in the temple symbolizes the bridging of the divine and the earthly, marking the temple not merely as a place of sacrifice, but as a beacon of the new covenant brought forth by Jesus. This interpretation highlights the shepherd's role in the nativity narrative, indicating their contribution not just as witnesses, but as heralds of a new era in religious history. Vincent's analysis thus elevates the shepherd's actions from a simple sharing of news to a profound and symbolic act, intertwining with the broader themes of sacrifice, redemption, and divine revelation central to the Christian faith. Last but not least, Vincent offers a profound interpretation of the Greek words used to describe Mary's reaction to the events surrounding Jesus' birth. This verse captures two distinct actions of Mary. She kept, sunetere, and pondered, sambalusa, these events in her heart. Vincent's examination of these terms reveals a depth of meaning that enriches our understanding of Mary's role and her reflective process. The term kept in Greek is sunetere, a compound word combining sun, sin, meaning with or together, and terio, terio, to guard or keep. Vincent maintains that this term signifies more than just guarding. It implies retaining or keeping as a result of guarding. 
This suggests that Mary was actively and continuously safeguarding these memories and experiences within herself. The use of the imperfect tense in the Greek text indicates an ongoing action, showing that Mary persistently and consciously preserved these events in her mind over time. The second action, pondered, translates from Sambalusa. This term, as Vincent notes, literally means bringing together. It suggests a process of comparing, analyzing, and weighing facts or events. Mary wasn't merely recalling events. She was engaging in a deep, contemplative process, actively assembling and interpreting the significance of what was unfolding around her. This is further illustrated by Vincent through the translations by Wycliffe, bearing together in her heart, and the Vulgate's conference, both maintaining the deliberative and analytical nature of Mary's reflection. Moreover, Vincent's reference to Sophocles' Oedipus Colonius clarifies this concept. In a dialogue between Oedipus and Antigone, the term is employed in a context of forming an opinion by comparing and analyzing facts. This parallel points out the depth and complexity of Mary's contemplative process, as described in Luke. In sum, Vincent's analysis of the Greek words in Luke 2.19 paints a picture of Mary as an active, thoughtful figure. Her actions of keeping and pondering the events of Jesus' birth suggest a deep, ongoing engagement with these momentous experiences, marking her not just as a witness to, but a reflective participant in these pivotal moments in religious history. In conclusion, Vincent provides a meticulous examination of the linguistic and historical aspects of the Nativity story. His scholarly analysis begins with the term decree, dogma, which in the context of Luke is a mandate issued with authority, pointing to the Roman political landscape. He proceeds to analyze the world, ten oikumenon, indicating the extent of the Roman Empire, revealing the historical backdrop of this biblical event. Furthermore, Vincent clarifies be taxed, apographestai, as referring to a Roman census or enrollment for administrative purposes, reflecting the concrete historical setting for Jesus' birth. In addition, he addresses the chronological implication of the first census, connecting it to other historical events, such as the subsequent census and revolt noted in Acts. Further, the translation nuances in the description of Joseph and Mary's journey to Bethlehem are reiterated by Vincent, who critiques translations for missing the continuous action implied by the Greek imperfect tense. He discusses his own city as a legal and social term related to family and lineage, repeating the administrative and social context of the census that brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. Besides, Vincent's interpretation extends to the nativity scene, explaining swaddling clothes as a term rooted in medical tradition that describes the care given to newborns. He suggests the manger could be located in a rock cave and discusses the term in the inn and to Catalumari as a multifunctional caravanserai. Additionally, in Luke's depiction of the angelic announcement to the shepherds, Vincent unpacks the role of shepherds in society, interpreting their watchful presence metaphorically and historically. He explores the linguistic play in watching watches and the emblematic nature of the shepherd's revelation at Migdal Eder in the context of messianic prophecy. Lastly, Vincent delves into the angelic proclamation to the shepherds, examining the terms used for sign and babe, 
and the selected and inclusive language variations that contribute to different theological interpretations. Furthermore, the titles attributed to Jesus, a Savior, Christ, and Lord, are analyzed for their deep theological resonance, underlining Jesus' anticipated redemptive role within Christian doctrine. Thus, Vincent's detailed review of Luke 2 enriches the understanding of the cultural, historical, and theological underpinnings of the Nativity, connecting language and context with the broader Christian narrative of salvation and redemption.